Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Today's message from Ron is called Hope in a Human, looking at Daniel chapter 7. This again is part of our Hope Against Hope series. Evening, everyone. It's great to be with you tonight. I wonder if you can think of a time when you have been really unsettled. Uh, I'm not talking about um, a time when uh, you know you walk past that person who always jabs you in the ribs and you flinch. Not that sort of unsettled, but the type of unsettled where something has really got you, like you're in the presence of evil itself. Have you ever experienced that level? of being unsettled. About uh, five years ago, I had an experience like that in a little town called Luganville on the island of Santo in Vanuatu. A group of five of us had gone over there to train some youth leaders at a partner church, a church that uh, my former church was partnering with. And having arrived, we travelled on a Friday, having arrived, we just went and found a restaurant where we could have something to eat. As we were sitting waiting for our meal... Each of us realised that independently we were feeling the same thing, a real uneasiness and a real heaviness like there was something evil in the room. It was so unsettling that we got up, excused ourselves, paid for the food that we hadn't eaten and left. We knew in that situation that God was mightier than whatever force was present in that restaurant. But we also knew that we didn't want to be in that restaurant. It wasn't our lack of faith that led us to be unsettled, but instead it was our awareness of the evil that was around us. How do we live in today's world when we feel unsettled, troubled, by things that are evil around us. At the end of Daniel chapter 7, we find these surprising words. I, Daniel, verse 28, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. I think they're surprising words when we think about Daniel and who he was. Daniel's deep faith and knowledge that there is a God in heaven had enabled him to be a non-anxious presence amidst all sorts of trials and tribulations. Now he's ruffled, he's troubled, his face turns pale, his heart drops but his heart rate increases. Daniel is used to living in a secular culture. He's used to living in a place where things don't go how he thinks they should, but what he's seen is something even more troubling than Babylon itself. The story of Daniel 7 goes back in time, back before the lions that we looked at last week, back before the writing on the wall, to the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. In that year, Daniel, who so often had been called on to interpret dreams and visions, has his own vision that he longs to have interpreted. And it's not surprising when we think about how disturbing 
the vision is that was just read to us. Four great beasts appear, one after the other, progressively increasing in their beastliness. One like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard and one with iron teeth and ten horns. Most disturbing of all is that these beasts carry human-like qualities, a mind, the authority to rule and eyes like the eyes of the human. Daniel understood, being a Jew, that authority and power were the domain of humans. That's what God had done in the Garden of Eden, had given the humans he made authority to rule under him. They were to exercise their rule, but to do it under his authority. But now Daniel sees the terrifying result of beastly rule, of rule that looks like it's human, but is ultimately evil. Daniel had tasted some of this already in Babylon. He may have well recognised Babylon in his dream, having interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you remember it, of the big statue in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel may have connected those four kingdoms with the four kingdoms that we, we hear described as four beasts in Daniel 7. Certainly, Daniel would have known of the symbolism of lions with the kingdom of Babylon. Yet what Daniel experiences in Babylon under the first of these beasts is nothing compared to what is coming. The increase of evil along with the beastly behaviour of those who, who rule brings fear to Daniel. In the midst of his vision about all these beasts, Daniel's eye is diverted to another scene. Happening in parallel, thrones are being set in place in heaven. The Ancient of Days comes and takes his seat, ready to make judgment. And a heavenly court is opened. While that's happening, back with the beast, the fourth beast continues its arrogant boasting until finally it's destroyed. In its place, authority, glory and power. All nations worship this one like a son of man and he establishes for himself an eternal kingdom. Troubled by what he sees, Daniel inquires further about this fourth beast, a beast that he learns represents a massive kingdom that devours the earth, out of which will come ten kings then another who will oppress in horrible and evil ways until at last, in Daniel 7, 26 and 27, its authority is taken away from the beast and handed to the Son of Man who establishes an everlasting kingdom. Now it's easy for us to go through Daniel chapter 7 and particularly look at it from a New Testament perspective which some of you will be already doing but it's easy for us to go through it and go, oh well, it's pretty bad, but everything turns out all right in the end. So maybe we just need to relax and keep our eyes on the end game. God is victorious. The Son of Man will establish his kingdom. Perhaps we just need to wait for that to happen. But the problem with that is, it's not what Daniel did when he had this vision. 
Even though Daniel saw the ultimate end of the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man, Daniel was deeply troubled. Why was he troubled? Well, it's about how we see things, about what we see. And it's also connected to the type of literature that we are reading. These visions take us into what's known as apocalyptic literature, literature that describes the end times. And we can be tempted to jump in and try and decipher each aspect of the prophecy and predict who's who in the beastly zoo. But rather than look at it in a linear way and in a predictive sort of way, we need to look at apocalyptic literature as telescopic and informative. What do I mean by that? Well, who can remember when they were 10? Oh, Steve James, awesome. (laughs) Apart from Steve, just imagine. Just imagine that you were 10 and you were looking down the future of your life. It would go something like this. When I'm 11, I'll do X, fill in the blank. When I'm 12, I'll do Y. And when I'm 13, I'll be in high school and really, really old. And then when you're 13, you think, when I'm 15... Oh, maybe I'll have a girlfriend or boyfriend. And when I'm 16, then I'll learn to drive. And then when I'm 18, I'll be free and everything will be perfect. And after that, I'll be old. And then when you're 18, well, some of you can tell me. But you kind of think, well, you know, in a couple of years, I'll be 20 and I'll do X. And then in a few more years, I'll be finished uni and I might get a job and I'll be 25 and I'll do Y. And then after that, yeah, I'll be really old because like 30 is approaching then and that's ancient. <laughs> and on and on and on it goes. We look at life like a telescope. We bring the end closer, but there's a whole heap of details that get missed out along the way. We plan thinking that we will get old, but old keeps moving. And the detail between now and old keeps getting filled in depending on where you stand. This is telescopic thinking. It's how to read apocalyptic literature. It informs what's happening, but it doesn't predict the precise sequence of events and details by which that will happen. So with that in mind, there's two things to observe. First, we see something that Daniel missed, and then Daniel sees something that we missed. Let's start with the first one. We see something Daniel missed. We see Jesus. Those of us who have a literacy in the New Testament, who understand the New Testament, will see Jesus here. Daniel saw one like a son of man. He saw a true human who lived out his God-given mandate. Daniel understood that this true human was doing what humans had always been intended to do, to rule the world under the authority of the Lord God. And this true human dealt with his power and authority in good ways. He rules the world uh, the way that humans were intended to rule it and not like the beasts that Daniel had seen prior to the Son of Man. Daniel sees the Son of Man, but he didn't see Jesus. Jesus took on the title of Son of Man. In the Gospel of Matthew, 
no less than 30 times Jesus takes the title Son of Man. And in doing so, he's intentionally referencing back to this passage in Daniel chapter 7 and claiming to be this one that Daniel saw. At the end of Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 26, the title Son of Man is what the rulers of that time used to bring a charge against Jesus that he is a blasphemer and ultimately because of that, crucify him. They recognised the religious leaders that to claim to be the Son of Man was to claim to be, in essence, God. We see something that uh, Daniel misses, but Daniel sees something that we miss. See, when Daniel saw this vision, he didn't react like, oh, don't worry, it all ends up well. He saw something that we can miss. Daniel saw that this is a story about the very troubling impact of evil in our world. The eternal kingdom coming at the end did not make the process okay for Daniel. Evil troubled him greatly, perhaps more than evil troubles us. Because we live in what some have called the beautiful world, where we can sip our lattes, where we can jump on a plane and travel to any part of the world that we want and where we can live in an existence that's shiny and glamorous. It's easy for us to see that the world is getting better and better. But Daniel saw things getting worse and worse. It's easy for us to see that evil doesn't really exist. It's also beautiful. But Daniel saw the stark reality of evil. We might look at the four kingdoms as they're described in Daniel chapter 2 with shiny metal. But Daniel saw the horror, darkness and sheer evil of the four kingdoms as they're described in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw the dehumanisation of beastly rule and the tragic impact that that has on the people of God. In part, this is because of where we live in the telescope of revealed time. In part, it's because of our times and the part of the world that we live in. And in part, it's because our part of the world wants to pretend like we've got evil under control. We've sorted that out. What's all this mean for us? Well, the application is twofold, I think. First, when we see evil, long for judgment. And second, let's live in the kingdom set up by the Son of Man, by Jesus. But what's those two things look like? I'm going to come back to them in a moment. Longing for judgment and living in Jesus' kingdom. But before I come back to them, I'm cautiously going to jump into a topic that's very relevant right now but also a topic that's very controversial and sensitive. The topic of the reproductive health care bill. Or to put it a bit more plainly and transparently, the topic of abortion. Now actually, if I'm honest, I don't really want to jump in here. What I want to do is exactly what we did in Luganville, get out of there. 
But it's important for us to think about this matter. We live in conflicting times and we need to learn how to discuss these matters with each other and with a biblical mind. Let me give you a couple of things first. First, I'm attempting to stay apolitical. I'm not trying to make a political comment. This is a current issue. It's not the only issue. In fact, some of what I say will relate equally to our treatment of refugees or of Indigenous people. What I'm trying to do is to wrestle myself and help us wrestle with living now in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son of Man. Second thing is that I expect that there are some in this room who have had an abortion or who know someone very close to you who has. I cannot begin to imagine what it is like to be in a position where that decision needs to be made. And I cannot begin to imagine the emotions that one carries having been in that situation. I don't want to diminish the complexities that surround this issue and I don't want to be judgmental or, or bring condemnation towards you because our God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That is his posture towards you. The cross of Christ where the Son of Man died shows every single one of us how much God loves humanity and at the same time shows every single one of us how much we need his sacrificial death to have hope in life. So what's it mean then to long for judgment? By long for judgment I don't mean that we long for a day when a big angry God will come down and smite people who have done wrong. I mean, long for the day when God's kingdom is set up, when all evil, all evil, is done away with and where we, the people of God, live together in a recreated and renewed world because that world will include the right treatment of all people for all time. The issue here for me is the dignity of human life. Life that is fearfully and wonderfully made by no less than the creator God himself. Life that is made in his image. The dignity of human life is fundamentally important to these discussions. In our fallen and broken world, there will always be compassionate and medical cases where we need to consider some areas that are very grey. We need to be compassionate. Like, for example, when there's physical or, or the physical or mental well-being of a mother is at stake. However, the bill before Parliament goes beyond these grey areas and it essentially dehumanises the most defenceless of all people, little ones that Jesus has given his life for. It breaks my heart 
that we are at a point where freedom of choice becomes a choice to remove freedom for others. And it makes me long for a better kingdom, for a better world, for one where things, where all things are made right. The kingdom of the Son of Man, Jesus. So how do we live in Jesus' kingdom? Firstly, we live knowing that we have been forgiven much. Every single one of us. If you're a member of Jesus' kingdom, you've become a member of that by grace. And as a member of Jesus' kingdom, you live by grace in that kingdom. Therefore, we live not by in God's kingdom, not by demonising others or by treating other people inhumanely. That is just to bring another type of evil to bear. But neither are we hopeless bystanders. Neither are we who just have to sit by the side and go, I can't do anything. Because we can be involved in creating non-beastly systems that anticipate the fullness of God's kingdom. The fact that Jesus has come already to establish his kingdom means that we can be part of seeing his kingdom come in its fullness. Every time our heart breaks at evil, we must also ask what the good news of Jesus' kingdom brings. If Jesus is the one who re-establishes the rule of true humanity, then we must ask what flourishing human life will look like. What will we do in our broken and fallen world for women who, for whatever reason, feel they are unable to bring a child into the world? How will we help them flourish? And what will we do for the unborn child? How will we help them likewise flourish? These are massive questions and I don't have the answers to them all. But they are questions that I think the people of God do well to explore together. Perhaps it is that we think about how to bring hope and dignity to all and that may mean providing physically and emotionally for those mothers and unborn children. We can't say no to abortion without saying yes to practically supporting human life and caring for children who for whatever reason are unable to be cared for by a birth mother. That, I think, is the vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus himself gave when he brought the kingdom of God to earth. A kingdom founded on grace and truth. A kingdom desiring not just to point out wrongs, but a kingdom desiring to make things right. A kingdom that stands not just against evil, but a kingdom that longs to bring in that which is good. As we live out of this kingdom, we anticipate the final end time, the one right at the end of Daniel's telescope and the one also at the end of our telescope. We know not when it will come, maybe today, but we know what it will be like. For others have also written about that final end time and described it from their telescopes, like Isaiah who writes, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. 
the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. We look forward to that kingdom. We anticipate that kingdom in how we act today. So whether it be abortion or whether it be our treatment of refugees, our approach to the environment or our economy, let us not be content with arrogant talk that builds beastly systems that result in inhumane treatment of people. But let us instead stand together with the true human, the one like the Son of Man, Jesus, our King, and participate with him in the building of systems that demonstrate human dignity and enable the flourishing of human life. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed set up an eternal kingdom where your Son Jesus reigns. Thank you that by grace you have enabled us to enter that kingdom. Strengthen us that we might live in it by grace. And Father, we pray that you give us such wisdom that we will be involved in this world not simply to stand against things that we see as evil but to stand for things that are good. May you strengthen us to be your people, part of your eternal kingdom that has a message of good news to bring because Jesus is our King. And we ask in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.